Today's read, chapter 10, Dojo. Me and Chris dipped into our funds and bought you a wedding present. We could have got you something before, if you would have let us know you was getting married, Amir said. We were in the dojo locker room, suiting up in our dogies, me, Amir, and Chris, my two best friends. They were weeks late with their gift, but it was cool. Truth is, I wasn't expecting anything at all. So, since the money came from our car fund, that means that I paid for a third of my wedding gift, I said, kidding them about the money that we all three had saved up over our seven-year friendship. True, true, Chris smiled. But brother, that's not the point, Chris added. So where is it, I asked, standing with my arms extended doubtfully. It's at Amir's place, Chris said. I turned toward Amir and asked him, Is this gift something that you use first? Because if you already used it, you can keep it. Y'all know I don't like leftovers. I slammed my locker shut, laughing. That's cold, Amir answered. Maybe I should use it first. We hit the floor, taking up our positions. Naja shrank herself into a corner beneath the large, anti-gray metal fan reading the new book I had just bought her. During the second dojo hour, Sensei called out for sparring. Although he always chose random partners, he tried to avoid putting me, Chris, and Amir up against one another. He put me against a muscular heavyweight instead, an old dude about 29 or so. It wasn't a conscious choice for me to place the face of Akimi's rude-ass uncle over the face of my sparring partner. Akimi is never coming back. I kept hearing that one sentence. I must have heard it too much or too loud in my mind. I landed a blow to my opponent that shifted his jaw and cracked his nose. It was only his slow stream of blood running from his nose over his lips and onto his teeth that brought my mind back into focus and into the dojo. My bad, man, I said. Sensei stood staring. It didn't move me. We are warriors, and some blood got us spill sometimes. This time was not the first time someone caught a bad one in our ninjutsu dojo. Later, outside the dojo, me, Amir, and Chris conspired in the warm night weather. What's up for tonight, I asked them. Nothing, man. You brought your kid's sister. I wanted you to come through the east tonight, Amir said, referring to East New York. Word? Chris, you headed to the east, I asked. Punishment, remember? I'm still on punishment. As we all laughed, Chris's father, Reverend Broadman, rolled up, pushing the caddy, and snatched Chris up. How about tomorrow night? I can come through after ball practice, but it'll be late, I told Amir. Nah, then come through in the afternoon after I get back from school around 4.30. It'll be safer for you then. Amir glanced down at my father's watch and then smiled. You know how to eat, yeah, and you know me. I gave him a pound. I'll check you tomorrow, I said as I walked away. I wouldn't want none of them boys around my way to steal your wedding gift from you, especially after you paid for it and I used it first, Amir said with a laugh. He got that one off on me. Later, I told him, and grabbed my sister's hand and kept moving. 
Is it wrong if I think that your friend is handsome? Naja asked me as we rode on the train and after being unusually silent the whole time. What do you mean? I said, shocked and having nothing else to say. You know, like he gives a girl a special feeling when she looks at him. Amir does, she said quietly. Don't look at him then. That's why the Quran teaches us to lower our gaze. When you see boys, don't stare at them. Don't talk to them. Don't let them look into your eyes and you don't look into theirs either. Don't do anything, I scolded her, feeling off guard. It's only the first time I felt that, she said softly, and I don't see boys or stare at them either. I go to an all-girls school, remember? Maybe I only noticed him because you brought me here again. Sorry, she apologized. I'm sorry, too. I hugged my sister with one arm. I won't bring you there no more. And you let your first-time feeling be your last-time feeling until... Until when, she asked. Until it's time for you to marry. Who knows when that is, she said below her breath. Chapter 11, Lock and Keys. The yard light flashed on and Mustafa opened the fence at 10 p.m. on the dot. He greeted me first, then shifted his greeting to Naja. Hey, are you sleepy? He asked her in English. But Naja wouldn't lift her head to allow her eyes to look at him or even toward him. I guess she was taking my scolding to heart and to the extreme but I thought it was good that she knew I was serious. I thought it was even better that she was already making an effort. Hi. Nope, I'm not sleepy yet, but I'm about to be, Naja said, still staring down at either her own two feet or the Ghazali's grass. Come on in, he welcomed us. It's my friend, the Prime Minister, Mr. Ghazali said with a serious tone, yet a genuine smile. I felt bad about getting greeting his warmth with suspicion, but somehow suspicion had become a significant part of me. His playful tone and the name that he had dubbed me, the Prime Minister, was not a compliment to me. My father had been the top advisor to the true Prime Minister of the Sudan. I secretly wondered if Mr. Ghazali had known that all along, or if maybe he only recently figured it out. When my father would come home to the comfort of our Sudanese estate, El Bait Rahim, that he built, he was sometimes filled from head to toe with dilemmas. On some nights, I didn't even need the children's books that he often gifted to me. My father would sit at my side in my bedroom and tell me stories that he pulled from the depths of his mind and core of his heart. Instead of talking serious politics with me, a young boy at that time, he would give his higher-ups and subordinates animal titles, revealing their characters and actions woven into a simple tale he would tell me the story of one general starring the vulture 
who invited and dined on death. One of his cabinet members he described as an elephant who no one could help but notice because of his size. An elephant who took up more than his share of space, made incredible piles of poop, ate up everything but did nothing else. I would laugh at my father's tales and then ask him, what animal are you, father? My father would think first, then break out in a broad smile, each of his sparkling white teeth set perfectly in his mouth. I am the camel. I can go for long months without water, although I prefer to drink every day. I can store food and eat it on a day when there is nothing else and everyone else's food is gone. I can carry many men on my back through the desert to an oasis that I know for certain is there, yet the men usually give up before we reach there, and I am left alone and saddled with their luggage. At seven years young, I didn't know the word metaphor. Now, as a teenaged young man, I understood exactly what my father meant. When I asked my father which animal our Uma is, he stood up, standing six foot eight, and walked a few steps in circles. Uma, he said, cannot be described as any animal. She is the sun. No matter where I am traveling in the world, I can feel her warmth and heat. If I look into the sky, she is there, radiant and shining. She can never be mistaken for anyone else. When she walks away for even a short time, I can't wait for her return. If she were never to return, nothing else would matter. My father silenced me with his words that night as my mind gripped their meaning. A tear did come to my childish eyes. You must not cry, my father cautioned me. It is our job to keep the tears away from Uma's eyes. It is every man's and every son's job to bring happiness to mothers and wives and sisters. Good evening, Mr. Ghazali. I greeted him. I know you will want to get right down to business. You and I can step into my office. Maybe your sister can sit with my oldest daughter, Basima. Mr. Ghazali called upstairs for Basima to come down. Sudana appeared instead. Basima is still at Fordham University. She said she will be there studying for her final exams, Sudana told her father. Mr. Ghazali seemed disturbed for some seconds and then pulled himself out of the mood. Sudana took Naja with her. My sister and I have to meet Uma at her job at midnight, I told him, so he would be mindful of my time. It was already 10.15. In his office, I paid out the $650 for rent and $500 for him to deduct his fees for his transportation services. As he dropped the keys into a small envelope and pushed the envelope across the desk to me, he said, here is the key for the separate entrance 
and another key for the extra night lock that we place on the fence. Since Uma and Naja will be escorted each night, she probably won't have any use for the night lock. Let me write out the address for Uma's job and I began saying, I'll drive you there tonight so that I can be sure about the location and route and then you will feel more comfortable also. After a pause, I agreed. Can I take a look at your basement apartment before we leave? I asked. Sure. For the next 30 days, it's your basement apartment. Starting, he glanced at his modest Timex with the black leather band. Right now, he smiled. I looked at the keys inside the small envelope, realizing that his wel- welcoming us into his home was an act of trust even though I was paying the rent. Downstairs, I checked the place. Each window and door and room, I opened every closet, cabinet, and drawer. Sudana cleaned up very well for your Uma, he said. Actually, the place was cleaned up all the while. I have never rented it to anyone else. I have only had a few nephews and nieces stay here. You know, family. My eyes went to the only door leading to the outside. My mind was focused on that instead of Ghazali's words. I knew that I would install a deadbolt slide lock. I had no way of knowing exactly how many people had copies of Mr. Ghazali's keys, even if they were his family members, but at least when Uma and Naja were here, inside the place, they could use the deadbolt to prevent anyone from outside from entering while they were home. Looking at the wall and the door molding, I knew it would take my handheld drill, either that or a locksmith. I told myself that Ghazali would understand. I saw how he had already, how he already had solid steel bars blocking all five of the tiny rectangular basement level windows. Even if an intruder broke the glass out of those windows, there was no way to fit a body, no matter how skinny, between the steel bars. My mind shifted again. The apartment was already furnished. Decently clean, but by no means spectacular. It was good enough, though, for me to begin thinking, why should my mother and sister ever return to the Brooklyn Projects ever again? With a whole month's rent paid out to Mr. Ghazali, I could leave here and go get my wife. And once I returned, I'd pack up our Brooklyn apartment by myself. I'd hire a moving company to transfer the stuff from the Brooklyn apartment to our new house in Far Rockaway. Then scoop up Naja and Uma from here and take them directly to our new home. Uma, Akimi, and Naja could decorate our new home however they wanted to and never again have to step their feet there or be bothered with the Brooklyn projects. So deep in thought, do you need anything else? Mr. Ghazali had interrupted right on time. We should get moving now. Naja slept in the back of Mr. Ghazali's taxi. When we arrived, I jumped out to get Uma and let her know we were taking the cab. After late-night greetings given very respectfully by Mr. Ghazali to Uma, we drove mostly in silence 
except for the brief interruptions of the taxi's two-way radio. I watched Mr. Ghazali as he kept his eyes on the road and drove us to our Brooklyn block. No other legitimate taxi would take us to our address, especially at this late hour, without hiking up the price and adding a string of complaints about danger. Chapter 12, Passport, Wednesday, May 7th, 1986. Uma and I were second and third online at the passport office. We were standing behind a panicked Pakistani-American who was headed home to meet his bride-to-be, who had been carefully chosen for him by his parents. He seemed to have to tell me about it as we waited for all the workers to arrive and windows to open up. I was stuck there, half listening. I'd rather him tell me than tell Uma. I think it was Uma, though, who inspired him and made him feel comfortable confiding in us. I'm certain she was something familiar, wrapped in her colorful thobe from head to toe and delicate as a tropical flower. She had accompanied me just in case the authorities here required any sudden additional and random signatures. We were prepared. Now she stood in silent anticipation, her slim fingers wearing faded but fascinating henna designs as she clutched a manila folder containing our neatly organized official papers and identification. Uma was also completing passport forms for herself and Naja. She had decided that even though she and Naja would not receive their passports until six weeks later, it was best for our little family to all have the same official documents. Arriving early definitely paid off. Everything was signed and stamped in less than two hours. You can pick up your passport anytime on Friday. Bring your identification and the receipt from your payment. The tired, older woman, buried behind her bifocals, said. I wondered how she could be so exhausted when her workday had just started. Alhamdulillah, Uma said thankfully. This was much quicker than how things are done at government offices in our Sudan. I am surprised, really. I knew that her gratefulness was genuine. It was rare to hear Uma compliment any aspect of living in America. Outside, I looked up at the sky and I saw the sun lurking behind the clouds. I took it as a promise that things would improve. It was a warm spring morning and Uma wore a cream-colored dress underneath her thobe that swirled gently around her ankles and revealed only her cream leather-heeled sandals. I'm going to dress victoriously, she had said early this morning after dawn prayer. I'm going to dress as though we have already won all of our battles. I won't let one person darken our day. I felt good walking down the street with her. I believed that her presence alone caused good things to happen. Her subtle and sweet scent seemed to encourage a friendly response from strangers who began greeting us for no apparent reason.
attendants in the shops we entered were unusually helpful. In the Armani shop on 52nd and Park Avenue, Uma watched intently as the attendant helped me into a new suit jacket that she insisted I try. Tall, dark, and handsome, the woman assisting me said, and looked at Uma, who had no idea what she was saying because she was speaking English. My Uma only speaks Arabic, but the woman was smiling as she was suiting me up. So Uma returned her smile, confident that her colorful thobe was working its charm. Finally, Uma chose her favorite suit. When you meet Akimi's father for the first time, inshallah, be sure to wear this exact suit. The suit does not make you into the man that you already are, but it does distinguish you for the shallow men who will judge you this way. This suit makes you stand out, Uma said, gesturing her approval with her talking hands. Akimi's father needs to know and understand that you are also someone's child and that you are loved and cherished with a culture, faith, and business and that you are not lacking in any way. She continued in passionate Arabic, caught up not just in the return of her daughter-in-law, but in pleasing and convincing Akimi's father. Your language sounds really nice. What is it? The store attendant asked. Arabic, I answered. Wow, really? I would never have guessed, she said, seeming surprised and a little unsure. I purchased the suit to please Uma, period. I was not interested in impressing Naoko Nakamura. In the shoe store next door, the shoes designed by Bruno Mugliani best complimented my foot and the Armani suit. For a few hundred dollars, they became mine. I was watching my money pile closely. I didn't want to see my father's diamond disappear without my holding something of true and great value in my hands in exchange. For me, this would not be this suit or these shoes. It would only be my wife. Uma read my thoughts, it seemed. She opened her leather purse and came out with ten $100 bills. The suit is my gift to you. Put this away with the rest of your money. I accepted her sincerity and thought to myself, this is how it is between my mother and I. We are both giving each other everything that we have to give, so our blessings in life keep going back and forth between us. Afterward, I led her into the Hunter's and Wilderness store and Paragons for the rugged wear that I preferred to rock. We shared a meal at a restaurant that Uma selected because of its name, the Tamarind. Uma loved the sweet taste of this tropical fruit and even used it in her cooking from time to time. When she saw the unshelled Tamarind dangling in the restaurant window, she nudged me and we stepped inside. It was an elegant place, each dining area secluded by a beautiful curtain. The cuisine was Indian, but the decor was familiar to us, the Sudanese. Once seated, 
Uma closed the curtain and released, relaxed her thobe covering. She and I ate comfortably, yet lightly. We shared palak paneer and dal tarka. Instead of any of the wonderful breads that come from India, we had vegetable samosa. It's something like a beef patty, but instead of beef, it's seasoned vegetables and potatoes stuffed and tucked in a fried triangular bread. Soon after the meal, an Indian approached, smiling ear to ear. His name plate, his name plate had only one word on it, one really long name with 18 letters. He drew back the curtain and held it tightly in his left hand. Immediately, he introduced himself as the manager and offered two complimentary dishes of coconut ice cream. A gift for your bride, he said, staring at Uma. She is my mother, I corrected him. Oh, Mother India, he exclaimed happily. No, I said seriously, while giving him the stare of a polite warning. He then shifted his focus onto me, asking, Oh, but she is not from India. She is wearing henna. Is she Arab then? No, I said, feeling impatient. What then? African, I answered in an even tone. African, he repeated, looking puzzled. I thanked him for his creams and told him to please release the curtain. I was used to Uma drawing attention. Like the sun, even when fully covered, she was still radiating. Please, come again, the manager extended his business card to me as we were preparing to leave. I accepted it politely, then grabbed Uma's hand and carried our shopping bags in the other. We taxied directly back to Brooklyn for a few dollars over the normal price.